It's good to see you. I was uh, uh, praying for you not long ago, and uh, well, yesterday, in fact, and was uh, thinking, I haven't seen that person for a while. I haven't seen that person for a while. Then it dawned on me, I haven't seen any of these people for a while because I haven't been there. <laughs> I, uh, I want to thank you for uh, praying about my surgery, and I'm feeling better than I deserve, and so I'm really grateful uh, to be joining you on this great resurrection morning. Well, if, if you were going to start a new religion, what would you do first? If you were going to start a new religion, what would be your initial um, pitch? So how would you sell people on it? I don't know if you ever thought about that, but Somewhere, somehow, Christianity got started. And what was their initial pitch, their initial idea, the thing that they said, this is what we're, this is what we're banking the whole deal on? Well, if you're like me, I mean, you were going to start your own, you'd probably start with some kind of felt need. You'd probably say something like, you know, if you become a Christian, it'll help your marriage. Now, I believe that's true, but there's not even a whisper of that in the preaching of the New Testament. You could be a tad more existential, maybe, and say, belief in Jesus will free you from the weight of your guilt and shame that you carry around. Well, that's true, too. But that wasn't the lead idea in the preaching of the early church. Or you might start with something that people might expect to hear. Like, you know, God tells us a good way to live. Well, he does. But they didn't start there. As they initiated Christianity, as they initiated the message of Jesus, what did they say? You know, they could have started with God. After all, you're going to have a new religion. You probably should have something about God in there, right? You know, God is good and he loves you. That would not be a bad place to start. But they didn't lead with that either. Instead, they started with the resurrection of Jesus, period. They started with the, the message that Jesus died and was buried and that he is no longer in the tomb. That was the message of Christianity. And if you are going to be a Christian, that is the thing you must come to grips with. In fact, every, not one, not two, Every sermon recorded in the book of Acts is about the resurrection of Jesus. They were relentless in talking about the fact that Jesus is no longer dead. This is especially significant because of their proximity in time and space to the events that they were talking about. 
Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection. That had happened less than two months earlier when they started preaching about it. Two months. Do you remember things that happened two months ago? Give me some kind of confidence here. <laughs> okay, thank you, yes. I mean, you probably remember something happened three months ago, half again as long ago when the, the, uh, they, were, they stormed the Capitol, right? That, that was kind of an unforgettable big thing that happened in the Capitol, like the crucifixion and then a mysterious resurrection happened in the Capitol of Israel. But again, that was half again as long ago when they started preaching the resurrection uh, as the resurrection of Jesus was. I mean, there was less than two months. And as far as space goes, they were just, I don't know, down from here to the intersection down there, away from where Jesus was crucified and buried. How hard would it have been for somebody to put the brakes on and say, uh-uh, <laughs> you can't say that. You just can't talk about it because he's there, right? That wouldn't have been hard at all. Yet it didn't happen. Because Jesus rose from the dead and that was the central feature of the Christian faith. And that's an unbelievable way to get started, really, if you think about it. The resurrection of Jesus. I mean, I'm amazed that they pick the hardest thing to believe to get started. They didn't start with some of the you know, you know, easy stuff that I was mentioning. They started with the hardest thing. It was, it was hard because uh, nobody in the whole world had ever heard of a resurrection until this. It was hard because they, they could have proved it false in a moment, but they didn't. And so Christianity was born because of the, the relentless commitment to the fact that Jesus died but was no longer dead. You see, you can have a religion without a resurrection. But you can't have Christianity. You can't be a Christian without responding in faith and repentance to the fact that Jesus was once dead and now he is alive. There are a couple important and inescapable realities that I think we need to uh, notice about that fact, the fact that they preach the resurrection. One is that according to all of the accounts of Jesus' arrest and his trial and his death, according to all of them, Jesus' closest friends scattered like a bunch of cowards. His closest friends fled the scene for fear of being arrested and accused themselves. And yet, within a two-month period of time, we find them boldly proclaiming that Jesus rose from the dead, and every one of them, 
Instead of fleeing and being fearful, every one of them was fearless to the point of being killed for the resurrection. I suppose unless you say the Apostle John, who was exiled until he died because of the resurrection. But still, what would turn them from this, uh, <laughs> these running disciples into these uh, strong, powerful, fearless proclaimers of the good news of Jesus who faced imprisonment, torture, and death if the resurrection was untrue? Why would they make it their central feature, their, the, the, the centerpiece of this new faith, if it was untrue? The reality is they wouldn't. The other thing that I think is so impressive about this is that the church went from a small band of fearful, uh, secretive, followers of Jesus into a force significant enough to overtake the Roman Empire in the span of about 300 years. And so what accounted for the extraordinary success of this early church? It was born into a world full of, of all sorts of gods where if, if you had a problem of any kind, there was a god for it, and you could, you could sacrifice to him or do whatever he asked you to do to appease him, and he'd help you in that situation. There was all kinds. In fact, you probably learned about many of them in your middle school history class when you were talking about Greek or Roman mythology. <laughs> they were not, at that time, the topics... In a history book, they were the honest-to-goodness things that people believed. They were the religion of the day. Clearly, they don't exist anymore outside of the history books, yet Christianity still is growing around the globe. I think it's probably hard to divorce the success of Christianity in those first few decades from the message of Christianity in those first few decades. Surely what they said about Jesus had something to do with the way that people responded to Jesus. And then ultimately, the birth of the church and the success of Christianity. Which makes me realize that the resurrection of Jesus is the leading and the indispensable feature of Christianity. So I want to I do something that is a little bit ambitious here. And that is I, I would like to take a brief survey of every sermon recorded in the book of Acts. Because I want you to see that, and not take my word for it, that this is really what they talked about. This is what they wanted to put before Jews and Gentiles, strangers, friends, everybody had to come to grips with the fact that Jesus was once dead, but no longer is dead. And if you can handle that, if you can get that squared away, then... The other things fall into place. 
And so if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Acts. It's right after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Then you've got Acts. And uh, we're going to start in chapter 1. But even before, okay, we get to the preaching part. Even before the, this, they decided on an organizing principle for their Christianity. They decided on what it was that was going to be important to them. And there were about 120 of them huddled in a room for fear of the Jews, for fear that they would be um, you know, arrested or whatever. And they had to decide, okay, who's going to take the place of Judas? You remember Judas was the one who betrayed Jesus. And then he went out and committed suicide. And so they needed a, they needed a 12th person, right? So they say, well, who are we going to get? And here was their criteria. Next chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. It says, so here's who we need to get. One of the men who have accompanied us during the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to the resurrection. What did they want? What, did, what, did, what was the essential thing? The guy must witness about the resurrection. So in the next chapter, in chapter 2, just a few weeks later, uh, less than two months after the resurrection, Peter made this the centerpiece of the very first Christian sermon. Acts chapter 2, verse 24 says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then he comes back around to it later in verses 31 and 32. It says, quoting the Old Testament, for he saw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And of that, we are all witnesses. I mean, how easy would that have been to say, that's untrue. We're all witnesses. And they said, no, we're not. But they were. Then in chapter 3, a remarkable thing happens. In fact, uh, something... <laughs> something that is near and dear to my heart, right? They heal a lame man. Okay? And healing the lame man was quite a spectacle, and so they gathered a crowd around them, and they began to preach the gospel. This is how it sounded when they did it. Acts chapter 3, verse 15. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Okay, you're, you're recognizing the drumbeat, aren't you? This, these guys, don't they have anything original to say? Same thing. Then later, uh, as they're explaining it again, they say, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Well, surprise, surprise, they didn't really like that. Because nobody probably really likes to be called wicked, right? They, so they got in trouble for it. Please stop doing that. 
And this is what the people who were frustrated by it said in Acts chapter 4, verse 2. <laughs> they were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. How annoying is that? Well, they got in trouble, and so they were invited to explain themselves to those who accused him. Uh, chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. Let it be known to all of you and to the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus of Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, this lame man is standing before you well. This is Jesus, the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So there, their message was, this man is, is well because Jesus rose from the dead. But not only that, because Jesus rose from the dead, he is the only way that you can get saved. He is the only way you can be made right with God. He is the only way you will get to heaven. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Because Jesus is unique, so is the way of salvation. Now, I love this in the next verse, verse 13. Here is the evaluation of the jury. Right? They, they were giving their explanation to the jury. Here's what the jury said. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. What had happened was they had made the same observation that I started with, didn't they? That these were just fishermen. These guys were pretty average. And yet, here they were, holding forth a unique message about a Savior who died on a cross and rose again so that you might be made right with God. And they were astonished. In other words, there is no other explanation for the transformation of those disciples than the fact that Jesus did actually rise from the dead. And so all this is going on, and here is the summary uh, in verse 33. The summary of the activities of the church. So maybe it's their annual report, maybe it's you know, their newsletter, some, some other thing, right? In verse 33 it says, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon all. I mean, this is not a surprise now anymore, is it? Because what they are talking about when they're talking about Jesus is the fact that he is alive from the dead. Well, they routinely, every time they did this, they got in trouble. They got in trouble uh, for talking about the resurrection. So here again is another response that they give in chapter 5, verse 30. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, but you, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. Now again, they were close enough to the situation. They were right there. 
it could have all been falsified, but it wasn't. Then a little bit later, in chapter 7, I mean, things, the pressure began to build because the resurrection did not fit into everyone's paradigm. It was a new teaching. It was unbelievable in some respect. And so the, the pressure got turned up and the heat got turned up. And then in chapter 7, uh, there is a man named Stephen who uh, we know as the first martyr in the Christian faith. He was the first one to be killed for what he believed. And this is, this is how it tells the end of his story. He had just rehearsed the history of Israel up until Jesus and nobody liked it. And then he said, but he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed up into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, how did Jesus get there? He was raised from the dead. He is alive and at the right hand of God now. Stephen's martyrdom. He gave his life here for the fact that there was a Savior who is alive. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open, the Son of Man standing at the, at the right hand of God. And nobody liked that. They cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, rushed together at him, they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. It was the risen Jesus that propelled him all the way to the end. And that young man Saul who held the garments, he, he comes up in just a little bit in chapter 9. And it's maybe the most important conversion in the history of the world, it too is dependent upon a risen and exalted Jesus. Look at chapter 9, verse 3. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling on the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. In other words, Jesus is alive in speaking here to Saul. That doesn't happen if Jesus is in the grave. Now, you, you can make any kind of theory you want here, right? About the flash from heaven, about all of these people in collusion to talk to their own people, the Jews, about... Um, their, their Messiah, so there's some sort of, you know, internal thing. The reality is, the gospel, of course, didn't stay with just the Jews. It didn't stay internal. It didn't stay within ethnic boundaries. It jumped then to the Gentiles. And in chapter 10, we have the first Gentile convert, the first non-Jew to really believe in Jesus. And in order to communicate about Jesus to someone who didn't have the ethnic background of the Jews, what did you have to communicate? It's not going to be a surprise. The same thing you communicate to the Jews, that Jesus was dead and now he's alive. Look at chapter 10, verse 39. We are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him 
to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him. Notice that. It isn't just a hallucination. It isn't just some sort of spiritual resurrection. It was a bodily resurrection, one that was real and honest to goodness, could eat and drink with his friends. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now I mentioned about how I thought I might have started, right? By talking about needs that people have to be forgiven of their sin and guilt, to be freed from their shame. Now here we have it, sort of for the first time, the implications of this resurrection. Now if you do believe Jesus rose from the dead, then he takes care of your sins. He forgives your sins and um, carries your shame and you can be free. That really is the start of the message and in the implication as it begins to play out here uh, in the book of Acts that you receive forgiveness by believing in his name. And again, you can say, well, that was just, it's just Jesus' friends. It's just Peter and John talking about this. They made a big deal of it. And uh, it wasn't just them, okay? The Apostle Paul, the Saul, who had this dramatic conversion experience, he became a messenger, not just to Jerusalem and not just to the Jews, but all over the known world. He started usually with the Jews. In fact, in... Um, Acts chapter 13, verse 30. He, he says, he, this is his message, kind of a standard one. But God raised him from the dead. Let's talk about the same thing. Acts 13, 34. As for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return, return to corruption. He has spoken in this way. I'll surely give you the, the holy and sure blessings of David. And then again in verse 37, like, like he's, is this what the sermon's all about? He whom God raised up did not see corruption. There, there aren't several messages here. There isn't some sort of low level you can try it on or take it or leave it. You have to deal with the resurrected Jesus. You must understand that if you are going to have all that God promises in Christ, you have to realize he rose from the dead. And that has to be a centerpiece of your faith. He goes on then to say in verse 38, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. This is what I mentioned before. With Faith in Jesus comes forgiveness of sins. And then he expands. By him, everyone who believes. So your response to Jesus, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Your self-effort, your religion cannot solve your problem. It cannot free you from your bondage either to some um, 
sin that plagues you or some guilt that weighs you down or some shame that keeps you silent. It is the resurrection of Jesus, your faith in a resurrected Jesus that frees you from all of that. Then he goes to another town and he starts again. In Thessalonica, in chapter 17. Look at chapter 17, verse 2. Because this, this highlights something I think that's pretty interesting that I assumed before, but I want you to see it real clearly. Uh, chapter 17, verse 2. He goes to the synagogue. Paul went in. Then what does it say? As was his custom. As was his custom. This is the way we do it. This is the message of Christianity. Jesus is alive. On three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. Again and again and again, the same drumbeat sounds that gave birth to the church in Christianity. It was necessary that Christ to suffer, rise from the dead. This is the Jesus whom I proclaim to you. He is the Christ. So it was super important to explain that in terms that Jews would understand. He is their Messiah. He is the one they were looking for. He is the anointed one who will serve as prophet, priest, and king for them. And then, before the chapter's out, Paul goes to a different city but not to the Jews. He goes in to the university. He goes into places where philosophy and ideas are exchanged. He goes into this um, pantheon of other gods. And if you were to ask the question, how do you, how do you talk about Christianity in a world of ideas? How do you talk about Jesus when Everybody else has some other version or some other religion or some other belief. I mean, are, are you going to change it so that it sounds a little better in a world of ideas? Paul said, well, the best way I know to communicate Christianity, no surprise, is to talk about the resurrection. Look at verse 18. Chapter 17, verse 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. He was mixing it up with the elite here. Some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Why? <laughs> because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Because he's banging a drum they've never heard before. And he's got the same message that Peter had and John had, Stephen had, Cornelius received. Jesus rose from the dead. Now, what happened then is that that brings you to a point where you've got to decide, what am I going to do about that? Is that really true? Or is that just something I hear about on Easter? There's just something that they make up over there at the church. Look at 
chapter 17, verse 32. This tells about the response. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Okay, that's, that's a first potential response. The absurd claim that someone was dead and now is alive. And that that person makes an exclusive claim to be the way to God, the way to get your sins forgiven, that is absurd. And they mocked it. Here's a second response. But others said, we will hear you again. So some thought, yes, this is pretty absurd still, but I wonder if there's something to it. I'm going to have to look at it again. And so they came back and back and back. And then verse 34 tells us the third response. It says, Paul went away, but some joined him and believed. Some joined him and believed. Your third option is to say, you know what? I've, I've heard enough. I do recognize that Jesus unmistakably died on a cross, that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day so that I might experience the forgiveness of sin and all that I need to be right with God. I believe it and I join. That's, that's the third response. But what is it about this really that matters to us? I think it matters because you've got to really recognize a Christian is someone who believes in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ and lives in light of the implications of that event. It isn't somebody that goes to church. It isn't somebody that's nice or moral. Somebody that even knows the right answers. It's somebody who is committed to the fact that Jesus is alive from the dead and they adjust their life accordingly. N.T. Wright says it this way. He says, the only possible reason why early Christianity began and took the shape that it did is that the tomb was really empty and that people did meet Jesus alive again. I suppose you could take it in a negative way, okay? Uh, one author suggests you do that. Suppose no resurrection or miracles occurred. How then could a dozen men, poor, coarse, apprehensive, turn the world upside down? If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then either we must believe that a small, unlearned band of deceivers overcame the powers of the world and preached an incredible doctrine over the face of the whole earth, which in turn received this fiction as the sacred truth of God. Or else, if they were not deceivers, but enthusiasts, we must believe that these extremists, carried along by the impetus of extravagant fancy, managed to spread a falsity that not only common folk, but statesmen and philosophers as well embraced as the sober truth. 
because such a scenario is simply unbelievable, more unbelievable even than the resurrection from the dead. The message of the apostles which gave birth to Christianity then must be true. You see, as you read your Bible, you recognize that there is a thread to the resurrection in everything. It's the key to God's acceptance of you. It's the key to your forgiveness, as I mentioned already, to your prayers being answered, to you being free from spiritual oppression, to your... It's the key to your hope for a better world. The resurrection gives you the power to break free from the sin that you can't escape on your own. It places you in a community that's fully alive. And it makes everything new. I've hoped to show you this morning one reason to believe that the resurrection, to believe in the resurrection that maybe you haven't considered before. The resurrection could have been proven untrue at the beginning, but it wasn't. The disciples became fearless instead of fearful. The church was born and expanded to encompass the entire Roman Empire in a relatively short amount of time by banging the drum over and over, the same message over and over and over, that Jesus is alive from the dead. And so as Timothy Keller suggests, if Jesus rose from the dead, you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about anything he said? If Jesus rose from the dead, it changes everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do think that the resurrection changes everything. And I pray that you would grant us faith to believe it, not to mock not even to hesitate and need to hear it again. But Father, I pray you would grant us faith. Thank you for the high bar that we must believe that Jesus died on a cross for sinners, that he rose again so that we might be accepted by you. Father, I am grateful for the hope that that gives me that one day all the wrongs will be made right, that everything will be made new, and that Jesus will reign as king. And so, thank you for the privilege of celebrating the resurrection with my friends here this morning. In the name of Jesus, amen.